Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. The Jesus' famous man walks with God all life long. In other words, we commit to a lifetime filled with the pursuit of God. And I want to think about this concept from uh, a passage from Jesus' teaching to his disciples in John chapter 15. So we'll read the first five verses tonight of John chapter 15, and we'll reference a few of the other verses in this passage later on in the teaching. But Jesus said, as we read it together, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And verse 5 is kind of where I want to make our home tonight. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this statement from Jesus, like all the I am statements in the Gospel of John, connects to the burning bush passage or episode in Exodus chapter 3, when God revealed himself to Moses at the bush that burned yet was not consumed. You remember that when God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt. It says in Exodus 3, 14, when Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in John's gospel, Jesus picks up on that title for God, the I am. Uh, he says in John 8, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. They understood that statement to be a statement of divinity that Jesus was claiming to be on equal footing with the God of the burning bush. And they wanted to stone him because of that claim. But all through the book of John, Jesus built on that title. Uh, he said in 635, I am the bread of life. In 812, he said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he said, I'm the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And as we sang tonight, right before we came in here, in chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the final thing, the final I am that Jesus gave is the one that we just read. I am the vine. Now, the statement to me displays the genius of Jesus. I mean, there's no way, I mean, I can't think of a better metaphor or picture than of the vine and the branches. I mean, if you just think about the utility of this metaphor, Every generation, every culture, every society, everybody understands a vineyard. I mean, everybody drinks wine. It's all over the world. It's always been. And so Jesus, in using this analogy or this metaphor, he's speaking to the entirety of the human race. 
And the picture was not just well-known throughout the world, but well-known in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God described Israel as his vineyard. Sometimes the vineyard that he cultivated and cared for bore great grapes and great wine. And sometimes it bore, even though he had all of his work, it sometimes it bore, bore wild grapes. Now Jesus comes along, speaking not to the 12 tribes of Israel, but to his 12 disciples on the night that he's going to be arrested and eventually put to the cross. And he explains to them that he is the vine and they are the branches in God's vineyard. And the thought, like I said, that I want to expand on tonight comes from that fifth verse. If you read it again with me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the key to fruit, according to Jesus, is to abide in him. Now abide is a word that John used in the Gospel of John and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which he also wrote, 67 times. It's kind of one of John's favorite words. I think about 40 of those uses are in the Gospel of John. And to abide means simply to stay in a particular place or station, to remain, to reside, to continue, or to exist in a place. So Jesus is telling us that the Jesus-famous man, the one who is responding to Christ's gospel epiphany, and the one who understands that transformation comes from Christ, is also a man who will commit to abiding in Christ. So what does this mean? Well, I put the definition that I think fits on the screen for you tonight. The Jesus-famous man remains in constant life-receiving relationship with Jesus Christ for the purpose of bearing more fruit and much fruit, which glorifies the Father and blesses others. We could just leave that on the screen for a second for guys who are writing that down. But also just to point out, the idea is of a constancy of life-receiving relationship with Jesus, with a goal, with a purpose. And the way I stated it here in the definition is for bearing more fruit and much fruit. And the reason that I wrote it that way is because that's what Jesus gives to us in the text. He mentions fruit, I think, three times throughout the passage. He talks about bearing fruit, then he talks about bearing more fruit, then he talks about bearing much fruit. In other words, the Father, as the vine dresser, has an aim of a multitude of fruit coming out of each one of our lives. And whatever fruit we're bearing to God today, God's mission and goal and desire is that through an abiding relationship with Jesus, we would bear even more fruit to God in the future. And so the Father will do what it takes, whether it means pruning, cutting back, uh, lifting up dead branches, uh, cutting off that which is bearing no fruit. He'll do whatever it takes in order for us to bear more and better fruit unto God. So the bottom line of this is that abiding is a life-giving connection. This is the branch cannot bear fruit without being connected to the vine. So we cannot produce the fruit of good character and good works without being connected to Christ. Practically, what this means, brothers, is that we cannot expect to be good men, good husbands, good fathers, good churchmen, or good leaders without a steadfast connection to Jesus. Now think about this with me for a second. 
The main focus of the branch is to remain connected to the vine because that's where the life-giving nutrients can be found. In the same way, the main focus of a Jesus-famous man is to remain in relational connection to Jesus because in him are all the life-giving nutrients that can bear fruit found. In other words, the main focus of the branch is not fruit. Fruit is the natural result of a connection to the vine. And in the same way, the main focus of the Jesus famous man is not fruit bearing. We want fruit. We long for fruit. We know that God wants fruit from our lives, but we know that the way to fruitfulness is through our connection to Jesus. So that must be our main ambition. Now, these distinctions are important because a lot of the things that we do to abide are also things that people try to do to bear their own fruit, to produce their own fruit. Uh, For example, uh, the Lord is clear in his word. He wants us to be men who are engaged in a local church, a local expression of Christianity. He wants us to be people who are in the word, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And he wants us to lead our families, if we have them, with, a, with a, you know, intentionality. But you can do those things or try to do those things without a strong connection personally to Jesus. And if these things are done as a way to build your own character, to produce your own fruit, and not as a way to connect more substantially to Christ, then they will ultimately be fruitless experiences. And I think this is partly what, why, or what would explain a man who can attend church or read the Bible for decades with no true character transformation or impact on society. They've not done those practices as a way to tap into Jesus. They've done those practices as a way to try to produce righteousness in and of themselves. So the Jesus famous man sees practices like Bible study and prayer as ways to enjoy Jesus. Just like a faucet connects us to a water supply or a tap connects you to a beer keg, so practices like Bible study and prayer connect us to Jesus. No one is fascinated with the faucet for the faucet's sake or the tap for the tap's sake. You know, taking a sip of a great glass of beer and saying, have you seen this tap over here? This is amazing. No, nobody does that. Everybody's fascinated with what has come out. And the word and prayer getting into them are helpful to us so that we can connect to Jesus. When asked about the greatest commandment, what did Jesus say? He said it was to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The concept of abiding in Christ picks up that theme. What does the branch want most? The branch wants the vine. What do Jesus' famous men want most? We want Jesus. We want to enjoy Christ. So partly I wanted to share this with you tonight because I think it's important for us as men to know our role in this whole thing. You and I, according to Jesus, are only branches. We are fully dependent upon the life of the vine. 
And if anyone partakes of anything good from our lives, any fruit coming out of our lives, we have to know that we're just simply conduits for the life of Christ to flow through. It's his life working through us that produced the fruit in the first place. And I think this partly can kind of take the pressure off of a man. You know, I'm just the branch. I need to be connected to the vine and the fruit comes out of my life. The Apostle Paul cataloged something similar to this in Romans chapter 7. You might remember that passage. It's where he was very honest about even his own personal struggles with the flesh. He said, there are things that I want to do that I don't end up doing, and there are things that I don't want to do that I end up doing. I can't stop myself from doing. And he battled this war in his flesh until he asked the right question. He said it this way in Romans 7, verse 24 and 25. He said, wretched man that I am. Have you ever felt that way? You know, just, why can't I stop doing the things that I'm trying not to do? Or why don't I do the things that I should? Then Paul asked, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answered his own question when he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, Paul understood there in that moment that it's not a what that would deliver him, but a who that would deliver him. It'd be Jesus. So he's reiterating that same idea. I need to abide in Jesus. That's where the victory, the life comes from. So the Jesus famous man understands who he is, a branch to Christ's vine. He makes this his anthem. I'm a branch. And he becomes fully dependent on and thirsty for an active abiding relationship with Jesus. He becomes consumed with the pursuit of Christ. Okay, so what I want to do in the remainder of our time is I want to think about how this abiding relationship works. How does this personal devotion to Christ work? What does it look like? You know, because the Bible commends things like public worship and participation in a local church community, public things that we're doing together. It commends this, in other words, what we're doing right here tonight. But it's really clear, the Bible emphasizes over and over again a personal devotion to God. Now, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Enoch and Noah, shortly after them, walked with God personally, privately, when other people would not. Abraham knew God personally and received his promises. Isaac went out into the fields to seek the Lord alone by himself. David rode and sang personal prayers and songs to God. Peter in the book of Acts went to rooftops alone for times of prayer. And of course, Jesus modeled this abiding relationship best of all. He was constantly connected to the Father. He went to the wilderness alone to be with his Father. He went out before sunrise alone to be with his father. He went to the mountaintops alone to be with his father. He went out on the lake alone to be with his father. Time and time again, Jesus turned to his father personally, privately, for direction and help and energy and power and affirmation. I think we need to do the same. We need to be men who personally, privately seek the Lord, are abiding in Christ. And this personal relationship with God it utilizes the word, getting into the Bible, and prayer. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. 
You can't have a good relationship with somebody without hearing from them and then also talking to them. Kind of both are required, right? For, for you to be really close with someone, you need to share your heart with them, and they need to be able to share their heart with you. So the word and prayer. The word, we're hearing him. Prayer, we're speaking to him. All right, so let's think, first of all, about the word. And I'm going to go through this real quickly and give you guys as many uh, practical words of exhortation and tips and helps for being a man of the word as I can in the next few minutes. But consider the words of our John 15 passage. Later in verse 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Don't you see both of those things there, the word and prayer? My word abiding in you, you speak to me and I'll do the things that you're asking for. I'm going to hear your prayer. So when we abide in Christ, his word abides in us. We can't be connected to Jesus without being connected to his word. Now, in our modern time, people like to, there's a, there's a line people like to say, it's the line, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. I was, I was at, the, at a, a restaurant with our, remember our men's speaker, Pilgrim, Pilgrim Benham, we were out to dinner, and this couple next to us, they were just like, hanging out, talking, and we, we kind of like got talking to them, and it was interesting because they were on their first date. And so like me and Pilgrim were asking them questions and stuff, and then uh, the guy was real like animated and, you know, just was standing up and like really getting into it. And eventually, you know, he asked me the question, like, what do you do? And uh, I'm like, well, you know, there's a, that church right up the road. I'm the pastor there. And uh, so that led him into sharing all kinds of things. He'd come from a Catholic background, and so he had all these questions and stuff. And it was a pretty funny conversation because he had a really foul mouth, but he would like kind of quote Jesus. Like, I think what Jesus is saying, I'm going to come down and save those efforts. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know that that's how he said it, but, you know, you kind of got the idea, you know. But as we're talking and, you know, discussing the Lord a little bit, uh, first of all, the girl's eyes are just like, you know, I'm like, you're getting a real look into this guy. <laughs> but this other older gentleman walks by, and maybe because we were talking about God or scripture or holy things or religion, he goes, hey, I heard you guys talking about religion. I'm like, yeah. And he just like looks at me and he goes, he goes, religion is for people who are trying not to go to hell. But spirituality is for people who have been to hell and don't want to go back. And he like <laughs> walks off and I'm just like, what the heck does that mean, man? And his daughter's like hitting him like, you're so stupid, dad, you know, but that's just kind of the idea. People think it was, he just thought it was such a mic drop moment. Like, I got you. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're saying, man. <laughs> but that's the modern mentality. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. But it's telling when you actually probe people. If I, if I was to talk to that man further, I'd ask him some questions about his spirituality, and I'd, I'll tell you what I'd find. I'd find a spirituality that barely ever, if at all, challenged him. Usually being spiritual agrees completely with a person's previously fashioned opinions. What this tells you is that the spiritual 
not religious crowd, they have a holy scripture. It's their own thoughts and opinions. But the modern believer agrees with part of that statement. Dead religion is worthless. But we believe that Christ brings us into a life-giving relationship with him through his cross. And in that relationship with God, we are often challenged and confronted because God speaks to us through his word. His word messes with us. To be in dead religion, one needs mere ceremonies and moral guidance. But to be in a life-giving relationship with God, someone needs God's word. Tim Challies in his book, Run to Win, which is a great book for men, said, God speaks today through the Bible. Its words are his words. Its message, his message. Its power, his power. Or as the psalmist said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So putting your mind on the scripture, in meditation on the scripture, leads to an abundant and fruitful life. If we think about it like this, everyone loves a man who's fruitful, like this psalm describes. Wives are blessed, children are blessed, friends are blessed, girlfriends are blessed, churches are blessed, co-workers are blessed, employees and many others are a benefit or benefited by a man who meditates on the word. And you know, I want you guys to know the Word of God. You know, I've been blessed to, you know, I was 18 years old when I sensed the Spirit saying to me, I've called you to teach the Word. And so that just set me on a journey of learning the Bible. And, you know, I'm blessed with, uh, you know, God has let me do that for my career. You know, I didn't know that that would be the plan, but I'm thankful to God for that blessing. You know, it's exciting for me. I, like, I, it never gets old to me to open up like the next passage of scripture on a Monday morning that we're going to look at as a church, you know, like this last Monday, Nehemiah 13, and like read it through a bunch of times and just be asking the question like, what is this week, Lord? What are you saying from this passage? Like, I love that. I love wrestling, thinking about it, reading people over about it. I love writing about it. I, I love the chance that I have to do that. But I'll tell you this, nothing can replace my personal time studying the Bible for my own benefit. I need it desperately. My marriage, my family, my friendships, my church family, everyone is better off when I am consistently in the Word on a personal level. Nothing could replace that in my life. And I believe the same for you. So here's a few ways that I think your time in God's Word might be helped. So here's some tips for you. The first one is this. Uh, daily read the Bible. <laughs> daily read the Bible. You want to be a man of the word? Just read the Bible every day. It's got 66 individual books in it, 1,179 chapters in it. So there's a lot of ground to cover. It's written in a way, it's a miracle in a sense. It's divinely simple enough for you to receive from on your first reading as a novice believer but it's divinely complex enough 
where people stack degree on top of degree on top of degree trying to understand it and comprehend it. So God has written it in that kind of way. It's incredibly accessible, but also incredibly complex. Just as a wife cannot know her husband's heart and mind unless she considers his words, we can't know God's thoughts, mind, heart, nature, or priorities unless we consider his words. So daily, read the word. To quote Tim Challies again, he said, Men, your church, your wife, and your children need more than a man who dutifully shows up on Sunday. They need a man who knows God. They need a man who makes time to meet with God in his word each day. I know I've said this before, but, you know, I'm a man like all of you guys, and there are times where I'm doing something that bugs my wife. (laughs) And there have been plenty of times in our relationship where she's been so thankful that I've got that daily time with my Father in heaven. Because there's things that he can say to me in his word that will back her up at times. And she knows when that's there, when that's present in my life, she's got a fighting chance to be able to express her heart and see growth take place. So if you're not a Bible reader right now, there are lots of great ways to get started. You, know, you can download the Bible app onto your phone. There's a ton of great Bible reading plans that can help you get on track. You know, it used to be that they were all printed, and so it was a real big bummer because it was like January 1st came around because they were all printed with like January 1st. And it's like, if you didn't start January 1st, you were up a creek, up the creek without a paddle. You know, it's just like, oh man, it's February 1st. What do I do? I guess I got to wait till January. But now your app will reconfigure it for you no matter where you are, and you can get a great Bible reading plan. Some of them are really ambitious, you know, read the Bible in four months. Others allow margin for error, you know, a five-day reading plan. So you got a couple buffer days each week to kind of catch up the things that you didn't read. But I'd encourage you to do it. Download uh, something and figure out a Bible reading plan. And while I'm on the subject of simply reading the Word, I'd encourage you to be a person who reads straight through various books of the Bible. It's interesting to me, sometimes people, Christians, will turn to the Bible and read it unlike they'll read any other book. Like you would never sit down and read a novel and just be like, you know what, I think I'm just going to like turn to this random paragraph in the middle of this novel and just think about it. No, you'd read straight through the book. And these are 66 individual books, so read straight through those books. Even if you were to bounce around, when you start a book like Nehemiah, go all the way through Nehemiah chapter 13, find out what happens. And so I encourage the same. I encourage you to do that with your Bible reading. Read straight through. Another thing I'd say is not only read the Bible every day, but read the Word with others. We thought about that a little bit tonight with the announcement about growth groups. If you really want to make this stick in your life, I'd encourage you to start or join a growth group. Well, what these groups are doing is they're selecting a Bible reading plan, committing to that plan together, and then those brothers are getting together each week and saying, hey, how'd it go in the Word this last week? What did you read? What stood out to you? Did you read? And then you proceed to talk about your own life and experiences and uh, commit to that for a period of six months. That'll help you get on track with being a Bible reader. I'd also encourage you to pace yourself in the Word. Read it with others, but pace yourself 
in the Word. If you're new to reading the Bible, I'd encourage you to start small, but not, not too small, which I'll talk about in a moment, but start small, especially if you're a person who's just let your mind over the last few years uh, just get blitzed by the internet. There's so many studies out there that show that when you spend a lot of time online, the circuitry of your brain is being rewired. So when you open up like a paper Bible, your brain is like automatically looking for little links to click on and pictures that are going to pop up and stuff like that because your brain has just been rewired. So if you say to yourself, I'm going to read 12 chapters of the Bible every day right off the bat, I guarantee you if your brain has been rewired like that, it's going to take a while for you to recover to be able to do that kind of thing. So start smaller if you need to. Um, so Pick manageable portions on a manageable schedule. But that said, don't make your commitment too small either. In other words, if you pick a pace for reading the Bible that's going to take you about four years or so, if you kept that steady pace, uh, the odds are that you won't actually finish it every four years. You'll probably just drift from it. Uh, my standard recommendation is to read a chapter in the New Testament and three chapters in the Old Testament every day. Uh, the reason I give that recommendation is because if you go at about that pace, you're going to finish the Old and New Testament at about the same time. You'll finish Malachi and Revelation right about the same time. And the reason I like having a bookmark in the Old Testament and in the New Testament every day is because Look, there's times where you're reading in the Old Testament and you're like, whoa, here I am in some genealogies today. So it's nice to be able to go like, all right, for genealogy day, I also get like Mark 7 or something like that, you know, something from the life of Jesus. So I like being able to get a little bit of both covenants in my daily Bible reading. So pace yourself, though, I'm trying to say in the Word. For me, I try to read the Bible about every year, uh, sometimes it's a pace that's like at a, a year and a half or so because there's just more that I'd like to get out of it and think about. And then sometimes I go through modes where I just sense the Lord asking me to go into like hyperspeed mode. And so it's like, all right, in six months, let's just read through this whole thing or less. I'd also encourage you to write about the Word. Uh, write uh, or journal about the Bible when you're reading it, if you can I'm going to explain this in a second, but what I like to do is jot down words or phrases that stand out to me while I'm reading the Bible, perhaps including a little action item or a prayer to God in response. And when I do this, the message of the Bible is reinforced in my heart as I write. Now, my style of journaling is not to write this like long form letter. I'm not writing a book. I do those kind of things in other situations. Mine's just more of a bullet point notation system. And I'll give you guys a couple of examples. This comes from a recent Bible reading time of my own. I was reading Jeremiah chapter 2. So here's a few entries from Jeremiah chapter 2. The first verse that stood out to me, I read Jeremiah 2 verse 2. And there was a thing in there about God saying, I remember the devotion of your youth. He is saying that to the people of Israel. You used to be about it. Right now you're not about it. And so my journal entry just read like this. It's a prayer. It says, I long to have a youthful devotion to Christ all the days of my life. Help me, O oh God, to be passionate for you all my days. And then a question, would I follow you into the wilderness 
into obedience because God said that, you know, you would follow me into the wilderness. So I was asking the question, God, will I follow you anywhere? Uh, later, a few verses later, I read chapter 2, verse 8, where the priests, he says, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. And so my journal entry just said, God looks for those who handle the word to know him. So Bible teachers need to know him. We must know him personally. And then my question was, how can I know God more this year? I think this was from the beginning of a year. So I'm just kind of thinking about the year to come. How can I grow my personal knowledge of God this year? And then last entry from this chapter, Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My journal entry simply was a question, what broken cisterns have I turned to, or what broken cisterns do I tend to turn to? So again, just very simple, just a little bullet point kind of thing. I'm just trying to interact with, let my spirit interact with the Word of God. And I'll just add that for me, as I'm doing this, the first thing I do is I just open up the Bible and I start with a psalm. Uh, sometimes I'll read the whole psalm if it's, a, if it's a shorter one or a part of the psalm if it's a longer one, but to just try to get my heart attuned to the things of God, kind of pray a little bit, and then I'll begin reading in this way. All right, moving on. The next thing I want you to see about uh, being a man of the Word is that we should see the Lord in the Word. Riley, can you check to see if the air is on in here? Uh, unless you uh, were born with a seminary degree, there's going to be a lot in the Bible that's confusing to you, you know, that, that won't make a lot of sense as you first read it. And there's going to be a lot that does make sense to you, but doesn't seem highly applicable to your life as you're reading it. I'm sure you've had those moments where uh, me or somebody else, another pastor, they read the text that's going to be thought about that day, and you kind of are saying to yourself, like, what in the world? I'm not getting anything out of this. What is he going to possibly say about this today? And then you go through it, and you realize, oh, that was actually highly applicable. That's a real common experience uh, when we first get into the Bible. So I found it helpful to look for, each time I read the Bible, to look for, listen to me now, the attributes and characteristics of God in any text that I'm reading. All right, so what I'm looking for is I'm wanting to know what is God like here in this passage? There's always something to learn about God from the text, and uh, that's really what the Bible is all about. So this takes some training in your mind because a lot of times we like to approach the Bible with the question of, what does this say for me? But you need to start with, what does this say about God? What am I learning about God? What is his nature here? And then that will inform you and speak to you about what it's saying to you. And also, as you're trying to see the Lord in the Word, seeing God in the Word, I'd encourage you to try to find the connection with Jesus in every portion of Scripture that you're in. If I could say it like this, most every passage of the Bible is either preparing for the gospel, foreshadowing the gospel, declaring the gospel, or teaching about the results of the gospel. In other words, uh, you've got 
You know, the law is preparing for the gospel, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, you've got stories that foreshadow the gospel. We even saw some of those in the book of Nehemiah. You've got passages that declare the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or the epistles, teaching the results of the gospel. And seeing how all scripture points to Jesus is a wonderfully edifying uh, experience, so attempt to find him in every passage that you go through. Uh, Jared Wilson in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, I love that for a book name, he said the key to real power and growth is to somehow behold the glory of Jesus in a real encounter with him and his gospel. So it stands to reason that if we want our Bible study to change us, if we really want to feel scripture in the way that ultimately matters most, we have to be looking for Jesus in the Bible's pages. All right, so be thinking about what am I learning about God and where is Jesus in this passage? So like the story of David and Goliath is always one of my favorite stories to uh, hold out as an example of this. The common way of thinking about the story of David and Goliath is, wow, I have giants in my life and with God's power I can overcome my biggest obstacles. But a better way of thinking about the story of David and Goliath is Jesus is like David, Goliath is like sin, and I am like the cowardly Israelite soldiers who did not have the power or the ability to defeat Goliath. And I'm now running in the victory of Jesus. All right, so try to be thinking about, man, where's Jesus? How is this pointing to him as the hero in this passage? All right, a couple other things about the word before we move to prayer. I'd encourage you to listen to teaching of the word. Uh, notice I didn't say about the word. There are pastors and teachers who will teach about the word. I think it's better to teach the word itself. Uh, in other words, I love Bible exposition. I think it's important to be quoting a text, reading a text, and then mining it for its resources. And uh, listening to teaching throughout your week can be a great aid to you. Uh, I'm blessed to have you know, kind of come to the faith and begun walking with Jesus right at the time where audio teaching was highly accessible. You know, they like invented the MP3 right after I started walking with the Lord. So it was like, man, we could fit, you know, thousands of hours, hundreds of hours of Bible study on our hard drives or on, you know, they came out with the iPod and it was just like amazing. We could carry around through the Bible teaching from so many different pastors in our pocket. And we can still do the same, of course. We can stream or download great teaching to our device. The, the issue, though, is that a lot of churches were like early adopters of that kind of technology, but now the market is pretty saturated and everybody's got a podcast about something. So there's a lot of competition for our ear space. So I'd encourage you to be a person who makes it a regular part of your life. You don't have to only listen to Bible teaching, but let Bible teaching be part of what you are listening to uh, throughout each week. Most good churches distribute their weekly teachings online for free. So grab a hold of those. And if you'd like a few suggestions, uh, I put them in my notes and they'll be posted tomorrow morning at nateholdridge.com. Some pastors that I appreciate and like that you can follow. Another thing I'd say, men, is that I think that you should read commentaries about the word. Okay, what a commentary is, is a study aid written by scholars who have done the work to explain the biblical text in various ways. Okay, a devotional writing about a scripture, it's kind of giving application to you, telling you, hey, here's what you should do 
because of this passage. Maybe there's a funny story in the devotional or you know, some kind of anecdote or something like that. Commentaries are not like that. Commentaries don't tell you really how to apply the Bible. They tell you how to interpret the Bible. They tell you how to understand the verses that you're wrestling with and thinking about. And they can help explain the scripture to you. And then you have to go to the spirit and say, God, what does this mean for me? What are you showing me here from this passage? And uh, one of my favorite gifts to give the people in my life is I give them commentary sets. So I don't know if they ever read them or not, but it's something that I like to give people because you can get on Amazon or wherever, you can get a great commentary set through the whole Old and New Testament, two or three volume for a very, you know, for a good price that will be a great resource to you for years to come. Because as you're reading through the Bible, you're bound to come across passages that you say, I don't know what this means. What's the meaning of this? And to have a great commentary can be helpful. You don't have to have it, but uh, I do recommend having them on hand. So again, in my notes, I put a handful of commentaries that could be helpful to you. One of them is actually free and online, and the others you should purchase. And then lastly, about the Word, I'd say learn doctrine from the Word. And um, I know a lot of people think of doctrine as something that's divisive or boring or unimportant, but those are really bad ideas about doctrine. It's true that the Bible's been used to unnecessarily divide God's people, It's also been used to necessarily divide God's people as well. (laughs) There have been times we've needed that division. It's also true that it can be presented in a lifeless or dull way. And while it's true that God is interested in our acts of love and sacrifice, this doesn't make doctrine unimportant. It's not like God is saying, like, I just want you to be a good, amazing person who does amazing things, who thinks really stupid ideas. That's not what God wants. He wants us to have our minds renewed and washed with the good doctrine of his word. Uh, So this is commanded in scripture. You can't really consider yourself a Christian without it. Christianity is much more than head knowledge, but it also doesn't exist without head knowledge. So to help you grow in doctrine, I've actually also listed a few resources for you uh, online as well. One of them being, uh, you know, most of them being in written form, uh, but one of them being a uh, through his systematic theology podcast by uh, Wayne Grudem that he recorded years ago. And uh, it's just kind of him talking through uh, one of the masterpiece systematic theologies that's been released over the last few years. And I'd encourage you to, to get that. For example, you'd listen to an episode that is like Angelology 101. You know, and you're just listening to a teaching about the origin of angels, the different theories about them in scripture, where they came from, and you're getting familiar with what the Bible says about angels or something like that. All right, let's move on to prayer now tonight. Uh, There can be no true abiding relationship with Jesus without prayer. Look back at John 15, 7 again. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, a lot has been written about prayer for good reason. I challenge you to try to read through the Bible and see how far you can get without seeing a verse, a passage, a story, a truth about prayer. It's hard to even get one chapter accomplished without finding something that urges us towards a life of prayer. 
God is about prayer. From the front to the back of the Bible, God appears as a father who longs for his children to cry out to him in prayer. It's important to God. Tim Challies again said, we speak to God through prayer. Our words do not ascend to an empty sky, but reach the ear of God, warm the heart of God, and bring about the will of God. Now, I want to say that you don't have to be a super spiritual man to be a man of prayer. You don't have to be a soft-spoken man to be a man of prayer. You don't have to like Hallmark movies to be a man of prayer. <laughs> when James wrote about prayer, he used Elijah, one of the manliest men in Scripture, as his example for it. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah had a powerful and remarkable prayer life, but who was he in James's mind? He said he was just a man with a nature like ours, like you and me here tonight. You know, he wore camel skin, he lived in the wilderness, he was a wild man in many ways, but he was just a man like you and me, skin and bones like you and me. But because he prayed in faith according to God's will, things happen. And that's what God's looking for. He's looking for men who will cry out to him. He's looking for men who will express their dependence on him through a life of personal and passionate prayer. And, uh, you know, I'm sure every one of us would say, man, I, I'd love to pray more than I do, more effectively than I do. But we've just got to keep pushing forward in this life of abiding in a life of prayer. So here's some simple ways to urge and encourage your prayer life along. First of all, I'd say pray with worship. Worship the Lord in prayer. See, when we lose our reverence or our fear or our awe or our wonder of God, that's when we're bound to dry up spiritually as men. That's when we shift either into the prodigal son's wildness or into the older son, the older brother's rigidity and lifelessness. But we don't want that. We don't want to be like the tax collectors and sinners, and we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We want to have an awe for God that drives us forward towards God in prayer. And one avenue for this is by worshiping God in prayer. You know, Jesus said that the first prayer on the lips of the disciple is, to God, hallowed be your name. That's a prayer request in some ways that is worshipful. In other words, we're saying, God, what I want more than anything is for your name to be hallowed, to be treated as sacred or ultimate, as supreme. And this is what worship is about. So our first prayer is for God's name, his reputation to be held in high regard. And worshiping God in this way, it protects our souls. You know, the danger is to become concerned about the hallowing of our own names and reputation. And a lot of prayer, if you really think about it, if you just step, step back in and, and inspect your own prayer life, or perhaps those you're praying with, a lot of times it's a misguided attempt at getting the name of the person praying to be honored. So when you start with worship, it's like you're saying, God, what I want more than anything is for your name to be hallowed, for your name to be honored. And I find for myself, when my prayer life is dry, it's the worship of God that helps to bring life back into my time of prayer. So when I say worship, what I don't necessarily mean is anything musical or in song, although I've been known to do that. When my wife tells me that one of her favorite 
things that I'll do sometimes is sometimes I pray in our garage. If it's really cold, I'll pray in our garage. And she says, I love when I hear your terrible singing out there. You know, you're just singing to God. Uh, that can be part of it, is a musical crying out to God. But in worship, I mean, you know, just saying to God, God, I'm, I'm thinking right now of the fact that you know all things. You know everything that there is. You know everything that ever was. You know everything that ever will be. You've known everything about my life. And you just begin celebrating God, praising God for who he is. Another thing I would encourage in prayer is the confession of sins. Not just worship, but the confession of sins. 1 John 1, 9 says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. Part of our prayer life should include honest transparency before the Father. Tell him your faults, ask for his cleansing and help to overcome, and talk with him about a solution. And this is a major part of prayer. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 13, that we should pray to God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So part of confession is actually protecting us against future temptation. Because when you're confessing your sin, it should yield naturally to times of prayerfully planning protections, lest you enter into the same temptation again in the future. So attached to confession, you might also find yourself committing, in other words, or for example, to accountability with other brothers. Another thing about prayer that I'd encourage is to pray with conversation or in conversation with God. This is one of my favorite aspects of prayer, uh, to just talk with God. As a man, a husband, a father, a pastor, and leader, you know, there's a lot of things that I know that I need God's help in, and I find that when I talk to him about these things, my mind becomes clearer, my faith becomes brighter, and my resolve becomes stronger after times of prayer. Remember when Jesus left the Garden of Gethsemane? He went in, there was a weakness, he was feeble. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Sweat coming from his forehead. But how did he leave? Remember, Jesus said, who are you seeking to the crowds? And they said, we're seeking Jesus. He said, I am he. And when he spoke, there was so much power that they fell down to the ground. He was changed as he interacted with his father in prayer. And I love this aspect of talking with God because it takes my care and burden and casts it firmly upon God. So I'm going to God for his plans when I'm talking to him in prayer. This doesn't mean that I never plan, but before I plan and while I'm planning and after I've planned, I go to God for his affirmation and direction. Paul David Tripp said it this way in one of his books. He said, achievement becomes dangerous when it tempts us to replace prayer with planning. So just talk to God about the plans of your life. Another way to pray is with thanksgiving. If your prayer life is dry, spend some time thanking God for his work in your life. This has happened to me quite constantly. One of the things I like to do in my prayer times with the Lord when I'm feeling dry before him or like I'm just kind of stuck relationally is I will go to him and I'll just go through the timeline of my Christian life and experience. I'll go all the way back to those first memories I have of hearing his voice, the first moments I began to feel the conviction of the spirit, and I'll just start thanking God for the different things that he's done in my life in the past as far as I can remember them. And it's surprising how the Lord will 
remind you of things that even in the moment you didn't know he was doing, but looking back, you realize, God, you were faithful here, you were faithful there, you provided here, you led me there. And it encourages the heart to pray to God with this kind of thanksgiving. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 69. He said, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Think about that statement, that you could do something that would magnify God, that you would do something that could make God appear larger. (laughs) It seems almost impossible theologically, but it's our thanksgiving that does this. Because thanksgiving puts God under the microscope where we see him more clearly for who he is. I would also say in prayer that you should be a person who makes requests. Ask God for things. Too often in prayer, uh, men and women in Christ never get around to asking God to do anything. But he loves requests. Philippians 4 verse 6, we should let our requests be made known to God. We should say them. Sometimes we're like, Why should I make my request be made known to God? Doesn't he know them already? Yeah, he knows all things, but he wants to hear his children speak that request. Jesus said part of our daily prayer life, it's almost, I I would never even say this unless Jesus had said said it himself because the rest of the Lord's prayer is so spiritual and holy and lofty and kingdom oriented, but right there, smack in the middle of it is the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Like just the basics, God. Take care. Here's a request that I have. I pray that you would take care of it in my life. So don't think of it as foolish to pray for the practical or the physical or the needs of life. Make your requests be made known to God. And then I'd also say in prayer that it's important to pray at times in solitude. Solitude is... I believe, one of the spiritual disciplines that's found in Scripture. And solitude is both difficult and easy to come by in our modern time. Difficult in the sense that with your phone, you're kind of never really alone anymore. You're always a moment or two away from connecting with another human being. So you can be completely by yourself, but you can pick up your phone and within three seconds be connecting to another human being. But I wanted to also say it's incredibly easy to be alone in our modern time because since everybody's on their phones, all you have to do is leave it for a little while and you're just totally alone in solitude. And I've been getting back to this practice in my own life because each morning I go on a prayer walk and um, my habit had been to bring my phone with me because of lists that I have on my phone or whatever that I might want to reference while I'm praying. But what I noticed was that there was just this low-grade knowledge that people were in my pocket. (laughs) And so what I started doing was just like, I'm just leave this. I can, I'm, I study for long breaks without being near this. I'm, I'm unreachable, long stretches of time, all the time, every day. So I can do this during my prayer time as well. And I've just found it does something psychologically to you to know I'm really alone right now. It's just me and the Lord. This is a time for us to be together. I'd also encourage you to pray to the Lord 
in that same journal that I talked about. Even those journal entries that I showed you as an example had within them prayers, things that I was praying to God about. Write down your prayers. And then I'd also encourage you, as I begin to wrap this up, to pray with others. That's a great place to learn uh, how to pray, to pray with other people. Uh, If you're a married man, I'd encourage you to pray uh, with your wife regularly. Um, If you haven't started doing this already, my suggestion to you would be to talk with your wife about finding a 30-minute slot each week that the two of you could just pray together. Uh, Christina is my favorite person to pray for because we have a lot of similar burdens. Uh, A lot of the same things are things, you know, things that we're wrestling with God about, that we're concerned about for the future. She's concerned about them just like I am. So we're praying for our kids in a way like nobody else could pray for our kids. We've been praying for these growth nights in a way like nobody else could pray for these growth nights. So pray with your bride. Uh, but there's lots of people that you could be praying with. Other brothers in Christ, it's a powerful place to turn for prayer. Uh, the growth groups that we talked about, beautiful place to be praying. I'd also say when you're praying, pray out loud and pray silently. Uh, praying out loud at times helps you remember that really what you're doing is having a conversation with God. You're talking to God. And for me, at least, I have a mind that can easily be distracted, so it's just better for me to like start a sentence out loud and say it. It keeps me going in prayer before God. But there's also times where it's good to pray silently, to remember that you're praying to an invisible God who knows your thoughts. And silent prayers, I think, enable us to sometimes pray more quickly and concisely and earnestly and spiritually than when our prayers are verbalized. And as you're praying, pray with all kinds of different bodily postures. I talked about walking. That's a way to pray. Uh, That's probably my favorite posture to pray. Keeps my mind engaged and alert. Um, When somebody wants to spend time with me, to talk with me, what I prefer is to walk with that person, have them talk, and I talk. I prefer that. But it's also good to kneel before God, bow before God, raise your hands before God. The Bible refers to lots of bodily postures uh, in prayer before the Lord. In fact, the the only one that's not mentioned in Scripture is bowing your head and closing your eyes. (laughs) But that's that's the one that we do, folding our hands. (laughs) That's not mentioned in the Bible. Uh, But whatever, (laughs) there's moments when... uh, walking or being casual in that kind of way before God, it just can't communicate your heart. So sometimes your bodily posture can communicate where your heart is at, or it communicates where your heart should be at. So if your heart is stiff, you can't get engaged, man, get on your face before God. Show him what you want your heart to be doing. And then I'd encourage you at times to pray through a list. Uh, When you produce a prayer list, Uh, It can be helpful because, you know, it doesn't have to be a rigid document that you stick to verbatim, but if it's created thoughtfully and prayerfully, it can become a stimulant into deeper areas of prayer, and you'll be really encouraged when God answers a specific prayer that you've written down. And then lastly, I'd say, guys, become a man who prays extemporaneously. And what I mean by that 
Yeah, is not that I want you to, you know, be like in the grocery store and all of a sudden just start praying this pharisaical prayer in the middle of the grocery store. What I mean is that prayer needs will come up all the time if you're looking. And to be a man who says, hey, can I pray for you about that? Or even just walks away from that situation and says, I'm going, I'm praying for that person or that thing right now. To be that kind of person, I think it sets a great tone. Ask your kids or your wife, if you're married or have children, if you can pray for them. When friends share difficulties with you, ask if you can pray for them. I think if you begin looking, you'll realize there's thousands of opportunities to bring things to God in prayer. All right, so again, our verse for the night, verse 5 of John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Let's make no mistake, man. God is looking for a deep and abiding relationship with us. An an intimate relationship with God is not reserved for the women in our church. It's reserved for us as well. The bravest and greatest men in human history have demonstrated a deep connection with God, their Father. Jesus is our ultimate example of this. He said, I and my Father are one. And he longs to bring us into this relationship that he might bear much fruit from our lives. So let's be men who do the Psalm 34 verse 8 thing. Let's taste and see in the word and prayer that the Lord is good. Amen? All right, let's pray together. God, please do this in our lives more and more. Help us, Lord, we pray. We've wrestled with, thought about, considered what it looks like to abide in you, to be a man of the word and a man of prayer. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would increasingly grow in this abiding life. Help us to be men of the word and men of prayer more and more until the day that you take us home to be with you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word and the gift of prayer. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.